This morning, the word that we're going to be reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. Reading from the English Standard Version. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, as we come to this passage, we pray for your Holy Spirit. Uh, as your Spirit has uh, inspired the Apostle Paul to write this so many years ago, we pray that even now, as we read it and think about it, you would illuminate us with that same Holy Spirit uh, to understand uh, what Paul has written, to see its significance and importance to us, to be able to apply it faithfully in our own lives, so that uh, truly, uh, by your word, uh, we would be uh, given sound teaching your word would correct us, even reprove us. Your word would train us in righteousness so that we would be thoroughly equipped for all the good works and ministry and service that you've called us to. Uh, we pray for this, Father, because we live in a very broken world, a world that needs uh, and needs above all else what Christ has brought. Father, we pray that we might be uh, more and more able to be good instruments and ambassadors on behalf of your kingdom that we can be salt and light to the world, and that we would be thoroughly equipped for all that you would call us to. So may the study of the scriptures now, may our listening to your word, do all of these things to the glory of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> I was uh, speaking this week uh, with a church elder in the PCA, not a pastor, but a ruling elder. Uh, who happens to be on the committee within his own presbytery that examines men who are seeking to become pastors. Now, within our Presbyterian body, uh, among Presbyterian and Reformed bodies, we have a fairly strenuous process for becoming a pastor. You know, it involves three to four years of seminary work after college. It, it, that includes the study of the original languages, Greek and Hebrew, um, uh, semesters uh, every year in school in terms of the art of preaching, principles of interpreting the Bible so that we can rightly interpret the Word of God, and an overall mastery of the English Bible, and then, of course, the core message of the faith, once for all delivered into the saints. This is why seminaries exist, in order to give men this biblical training. But that seminary degree, though necessary, in no way is sufficient uh, to guarantee that a man will be ordained as a pastor. He still has to pass both written and oral exams given by his presbytery. Uh, these exams can take anywhere from 10 to 20 hours to complete. In fact, no other Protestant tradition requires as much preparation of its pastors as the Presbyterian and Reformed tradition. Now, this particular ruling elder with whom I was speaking um, was very concerned because um, the pastoral candidates uh, coming before the committee at this point appeared to have some glaring weakness, this one in particular, in his overall comprehension of the Bible's message. 
So finally, uh, one of the pastors on the committee, uh, feeling some pity and sympathy for the man, wanted to give him an easier kind of question, something less technical, something less complex. And so he said to him, well, can you just state for us what is the most important message of the Bible in essentially one statement? And fairly quickly, the candidate replied, sure, the sovereignty of God, that God is sovereign. Now, this was not, in fact, what the pastor and the committee were looking for. So the pastor replied along these lines, and this is how it was related to me from this ruling elder. As important as that doctrine is, the answer we are looking for, the answer that must totally constrain and inform your ministry, is the redemption that God has provided and accomplished in the person and work of Christ. In other words, those who were examining this candidate for the ministry stressed the very same thing that the Apostle Paul does here, that the message that is of first importance and always will be is the gospel of Christ, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now, this is Palm Sunday. But my intention is to give a Good Friday message, which is to say, I intend to speak uh, only to this first part of this message that the Apostle Paul describes as being of uh, essential and first importance. That is to say, there are three essential gospel truths uh, in what Paul says here that we can pull together because they form a perfect unity. First, that Christ died. Secondly, that Christ died for our sins. And thirdly, that Christ died according to the scriptures. And so in speaking of these three elements this morning of Paul's statement, we're going to be remembering this most essential idea. That in a world of lost sinners, there is no other message than the gospel that is of first importance. That which is of first and greatest importance is the message of the person and work of Christ. Now, as we look at these three elements that most explain what happened on that Friday that Jesus was crucified, I intend to consider them in the reverse order, which is to say what Christ did, he did according to the scriptures. Secondly, what Christ did, he did for our sins. And then thirdly, what Christ did is that he died. So that's our outline and that's our order. According to the scriptures, for our sins, Christ died. First, then, this phrase, according to the scriptures. When we think about the gospel that Paul preached, that same gospel that we must preach, that we must proclaim, that we must share with others as, as we witness or evangelize, we are consciously committed to the idea that before Jesus ever came into the world, the scriptures that were written from the hand of Moses down to the hand of Malachi the last of the Old Testament prophets, we are committed to this idea that, even as Jesus himself taught to the unbelieving Jewish leadership, you can look at John 5.39 for this, that, quote, the scriptures are they that bear witness about Christ. Or as Jesus taught on the day of resurrection, after he had risen from the dead, 
he said, and beginning, and Luke says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself, from Luke 24, 27. So this is of first importance, that what Jesus Christ did in this world was in accordance with the written word of God that God had given to the people of Israel. Now, we can see in Scripture several ways of how the coming of Jesus, particularly his death, was in accordance with the Scripture. And I want to mention just two of these, both connected to the idea of fulfillment. Uh, the first would be prophecy, fulfillment of prophecy. And the second would be purpose, fulfillment of a purpose. So with respect to the fulfillment of prophecy, we're talking about the level of God acting in human history in which the fulfillment of prophecy is crucially important since the prophet spoke to Israel about the coming of God's Messiah as God's ultimate promise to them. And, of course, God had said to Moses that if, if prophets speak but do not give the truth, they're not to be believed. Now, Jesus himself makes this claim that we just saw, that the prophets did speak the truth, and they prophesied concerning him, and these prophecies are fulfilled in him. Now, almost every Christmas season, and of course during the Easter time, uh, through all the years of, of our church's ministry, we have rehearsed so many of these fulfillments in the events of Jesus' life. Think of all the things that prophecy predicted and that Jesus has fulfilled. His lineage from Abraham, and then specifically from the tribe of Judah, and then even more specifically from the line of King David. Uh, his birth in Bethlehem from a mother who was a virgin. Uh, how his coming into this world would be preceded by a forerunner, fulfilled of John the Baptist. Uh, how he would have ministry in Galilee. How in that ministry he would perform miracles of healing and how he would ride triumphantly into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey, how he would be rejected by the Jewish leadership, how he would be betrayed by one of his own disciples, how he would not defend himself at his trial, how his death would be a conspiracy that involved both the Jewish and uh, Gentile leaders working together, how he would be flogged before he was crucified. And how in his death by crucifixion, not a single bone of his body was broken. Although this was the usual custom. And those crucified with him did have their bones broken, their legs. And how those who crucified him directly, the soldiers around him, how they gambled for his garments. How those who hated him surrounded the cross to mock him. How his disciples abandoned him at his hour of trial and death. How his death was among criminal malefactors. But ironically, how he was placed in a tomb that belonged to someone rich. Now, all of these events were predicted in the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus came into this world. He lived, he served, he died according to the scriptures. This history of Christ was foretold in the Old Testament, in prophecy been fulfilled in the actual events when Jesus came. So we can say the history of Christ 
the history that we find recorded in the scripture before Jesus ever came is the fulfillment of prophecy. Secondly, then, but the fulfillment of, of purpose. Scripture, Old Testament, presented a purpose to the coming of Christ, uh, which Jesus had to fulfill in order to be the true Messiah, to be the Christ. Some months back, I read a story about a well-trained Christian who engaged uh, a very modern Jewish fellow over the matter of Christ and the Bible. And the basic attack and opposition from this Jewish man was that Christians make a false claim when they say that the Jewish Bible, what we call our Old Testament, has anything to say about Jesus Christ. He maintained that the Jewish Bible has nothing ever to say about Jesus. And that is a belief that's commonly taught and held among Jews. So before things went any further, the Christian said to him, well, let me read something to you out of my Christian Bible. And you tell me, who is this about? And whether it's in our Old Testament, the same as your Bible, or if it's in our New Testament. So this is what he read. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was fear pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Immediately, the Jewish fellow said, that is about your Jesus and is from your New Testament Bible. And the Christian opened up his Bible so that this Jewish man could see the exact book and the exact verses that he had read. And he was shocked to see that what had been read to him was from the Old Testament, from Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4, 5, and 6. Now, you and I know that the entire 53rd chapter of Isaiah prophesies the purpose of the coming of Jesus Christ. It is so clear that even someone with a Jewish background who has this passage read to him would jump to the conclusion that it's obviously about Jesus and likewise think that it must be out of the Christian New Testament. Now, not every Jew, of course, because there are some Jews who actually read their Hebrew Bible and they know of this passage and they follow how the rabbis have argued for centuries that this is not really about the personal Messiah, but this really applies to the whole nation of Israel. But when someone reads this passage for the very first time, someone who reads this without all of the Jewish arguments against Jesus, when, when someone reads this simply as someone who knows about Christianity that is all about Jesus dying for his sins, it's not surprising that Isaiah 53 seems to them to be about Jesus, seems to them as something that you would find written in the Christian New Testament. And the point is this. When Jesus died according to the scriptures, this was the fulfillment of the purpose of the scriptural plan for the Messiah coming into the world. What Christ did, he did according to the purpose given in the scriptures long before he came. And this purpose is of first importance. This purpose, 
as Isaiah 53 so clearly points out, is for our sins. So that's the next phrase. For our sins. It is for our sins that Christ died. Now, there are those out there, even within the Christian church, who say things something like this. Why can't God just have sent Jesus into the world to show us what it means to live a godly life and how to be God-honoring people? Why did Jesus really have to die? Why can't God just forgive? Now, they think and feel this way because from their point of view, they don't really get the concept of sin. And that's part of the problem of sin. Human sinfulness leads to a very deep moral blindness. In fact, it's only within the fellowship with God where our deepest love begins to be toward God that we really begin to get the nature of sin. Uh, for the second time during this uh, COVID era, I'm reading about the life of George Mueller. Uh, this was the man who in the 19th century in England, specifically in Bristol, uh, God used to raise up orphanages that took care of hundreds and hundreds of children. Uh, this time what I'm reading is the biography by A.T. Pearson. And I came across Pearson's discussion of this problem about our seeing and understanding the issue of sin correctly. This is what he said. The more we live in God and unto God, the more do our eyes become enlightened to see the enormity and deformity of sin so that we recognize the hatefulness of evil more distinctly. And the more clearly do we recognize the perfection of God's holiness and make it the pattern and model of our own holy living. Now, it caught my attention that Pearson captured the biblical problem of sin with two concepts that tell us why this was the purpose of Christ dying. Pearson wrote about the enormity and deformity of sin. So think about the enormity of sin. Unless we have a biblical vision of how hateful evil is to God, we can't really understand how wrong and awful our sin is. So what is the enormity of sin? What makes sin an enormous issue for God? Well, the straightforward biblical answer is that sin is by its nature a defiance of God. It is a rebellion against God. It is a rejection of God's moral authority over us. It is a rejection of the idea that because he is who he is, that we are obligated to obey him. I have seen this in people, and you have too. In fact, you see it all of the time. But let me make it very clear. This is a story I've told a number of times, but once during my college summer days, I was asked by two college students with whom I worked why I believed in God. And my response was this. I don't think that believing in God really matters all that much. Most people in America believe in God, but it doesn't really change how they live. So I asked them, 
But if you were to become convinced, absolutely convinced that God really did exist, would this make a difference to your life? Two young men, two entirely different answers. The first said, yes, I would have to live my life for him. And the other said, no, I wouldn't change my life any way at all. Now, that's, that second college student is where most people are who believe in God. It does not make any difference to how they live. And this means that they don't really care about God, and they don't care for God, and they are content to live their lives outside of his ways. He's the creator. But they're not going to live as though this means anything to them. They're not going to live as if they are in any way bound to him. They're not going to love him, and they're not going to obey him. The enormity here is that God has the moral high ground. God is absolutely good. God is perfect. God is holy. God is just. God is righteous. God deserves to be worshipped for who he is and praised and thanked and served and loved to the utmost of our abilities. Now I know that these common believers in God don't see this. It is really as we grow in our walk and fellowship with God that we do see it. And that was Pearson's point. He said, the more we live in God and unto God, the more do our eyes become enlightened to see the enormity of sin. To be able to see that sin is not something that God can overlook. To be able to see that moral rebellion is a moral wrong that a moral God must confront and address. Look at it this way. If you and I see a moral wrong, we can ignore it, or we can seek to address it in a morally appropriate way. We see children being victimized. We can't ignore this moral wrong, because if we do, if we choose to do nothing in the face of moral evil, then we are aiding and abetting, helping and assisting those who do evil. So to think that God could just forgive sin, to overlook evil, is really to say that God should just simply do nothing, and in doing nothing, help and assist those who do evil. Sin is an enormous problem that requires an enormous solution. The second re reason God must address sin is that it is a wretched deformity. The Bible says that this matter of sin and sinfulness actually makes of each of us bad people. We are bad to the bone. And that badness shows up in what we can call spiritual and moral narcissism. Most of us understand what narcissism is in people. It's an extreme form of self-centeredness where people make all relations and all circumstances essentially about themselves. It's that friend who calls you up to say, hey, I hear you had COVID. How are you? And as you start to explain what you've gone through, he, you get cut off with, oh, yeah, do I understand? I'm still having side effects. 
Uh, I've been to the doctor twice. I'm on a whole new regimen of vitamins and supplements. Some are so disagreeable that I had to go to the doctor again because my stomach just keeps hurting me. Uh, and now I'm reading about these, quote, long COVID, unquote, symptoms. So I'm going back to the doctor this week. And oh, what a mess this whole pandemic has made to my life. You get the picture. That's narcissism. Turning every conversation back upon the person, the person talking, the person who initiated it. The deformity of our sin is that we are moral narcissists. We make life before God all about us. It's all about what we want to do, what we like, what we covet, what we deeply desire, what makes us happy, what we envy, what we are greedy for. And Paul describes it this way very briefly in Ephesians 2, 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the flesh, meaning our flesh, our minds, our bodies, all about us. Or more expansively, Galatians 5, 19 to 21, Paul talks about the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like that. Every one of these is rooted in self and in an intense focus upon oneself. Romans 1, 29 to 31, where Paul says much the same thing, but it bears repeating. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. Gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Now, we live in God's world, God's creation. We exist and dependence on God's will and God's power every moment of our existence. In God, we live and move and have our being. But while all of this is true, we don't care much about God at all. But we care preeminently about ourselves. That's spiritual and moral narcissism. And that's the deformity of sin. It curves us back in upon ourselves so that we are spiritually and morally deformed. We have made ourselves the center of the universe. We dethrone God so that we can take his place over our own lives. And for us to think that God can just forgive this, that God can just let it pass, that God can do uh, nothing at all about it, the existence and nature of sin makes the matter of our sin an issue of first importance. And it is the good news that God has done about sin what has needed to be done about sin, and that is to be found in the death of his son. And so we come to this third part of the statement that, quote, Christ died. It is Christ who died for our sins. 
And so we have two things here that we need to join together, the person of Christ and then the nature of his death. So in the first place, the person of Christ. It is the Savior, the one who dies for us, who's God himself. Um, have you ever listened to um, uh, Martin DeHaan on the radio? For most of us, uh, these would have been rebroadcast of the radio Bible class because Dr. DeHaan actually died in 1965. So these would have been broadcast long after his death on the radio. Well, he didn't die on the radio, but after his death, rebroadcast on the radio. Now, and, uh, and I've actually heard him. So these were rebroad. I didn't know he was dead when I was listening to him, but uh, though dead, yet he spoke. <laughs> now, in one such broadcast, DeHaan told this story about a Christian minister who was holding a meeting, and there in his audience was a Jehovah's Witness. This man was not keeping quiet. He was actually into shouting and heckling, and he had one main heckle that was about Christ. And so he would shout out, you cannot prove that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. No, he was the firstborn of every creature. So he could not be deity. The eternal father must therefore be older than his son. And if Christ is not as old as his father, then he's not eternal. And if he's not eternal, he cannot be God. So the preacher listened carefully to this argument, to the logic of the argument. And then he replied with biblical truth and biblical logic. So he said, you have said that a father must be older than his son, but... While you make such a point concerning an earthly parent, it certainly does not apply when we speak of God. And I will prove that to you by your own words. You have just called God the eternal father. But how can God be the eternal father, not just God, but the eternal father without having an eternal son? Eternal fatherhood demands eternal sonship. When did your own paternal parent begin to be your father? At the very moment you became his son and not before. While time must elapse before one can become a human father, this is not true of God. He is the eternal father, and therefore he must have had a son from all eternity. And to this the Jehovah's Witness had no reply. But the point that this makes about Jesus is about his person. Who is Jesus actually? Christ is himself, the second person of the Trinity. Christ is himself fully God, fully God and fully man. And therefore, Jesus could do toward God what man owed to God, perfect obedience. And Jesus could do toward God what man could never do, die such a death that would fully pay the debt that our sin has incurred toward God, the debt incurred because of the enormity and deformity of our sin. So here we have that which is of first importance. The word of God, who is God, became flesh. In Jesus, the fullness of the de deity dwelt in bodily form. And in his incarnation, Jesus came to be what John the Baptist cried out about him. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus came as the God-man, 
not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now that phrase, a ransom for many. A price that had to be paid to purchase their redemption from sin. A necessary price that would expiate our guilt and satisfy divine justice. A necessary price that would propitiate the holy wrath of God's righteous anger against sin. A necessary price that would reconcile us to God, uh, those who have been his enemies. Such a ransom price had to be paid. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And only the perfect blood of Christ, only the perfect death of Jesus on the cross could ever bring to us the atonement and the forgiveness we need. It is in Christ that we have redemption and the forgiveness of our sin. Thus, then, the nature of his death. Christ died for. Christ died for a reason, for a purpose that is in accord with the purpose set forth in Scripture. Even as we read of this in Isaiah 53, that purpose, that death of Christ, the purpose of the death of the Son of God was substitutionary. He died for us. He died in our place. He received in his death and the sorrows surrounding that death what should have come to us because of the enormity and deformity of sin. And look at how clearly this is given in Isaiah 53. So once more, back to verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Christ, our substitute, carried this for us. Verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. That substitution. He was crushed for our iniquities. That is substitution. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Again, substitution. And with his wounds we are healed. Substitution. Verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is substitution. We're going further to verse 8. Who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Substitution. And verse 12. He was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many. Substitution. Christ died for our sins. His death was God's just substitution of his own son in our place to bear our griefs, to carry our sorrows, to be stricken and smitten by God and afflicted for us, to be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, chastised and wounded in our place to bring us healing and peace, our sins and iniquity laid on Christ. He was cut off in death for our transgressions. He bore our sin. You see, even those who wonder why Jesus had to die, who ask, why can't God just forgive us, see that they need forgiveness. 
that they've done wrong, that they are guilty human beings. What they miss, what they are so blinded to see, is that the enormity and deformity of their sin requires a full payment and restitution to God in terms of the highest form of judgment, a payment that costs no less than that which the eternal Son of God paid for with his own perfect life. So here then is what we've seen. Three great truths that exist in perfect unity that are of first importance. What Christ did of first importance was according to the scriptures. And what Christ did of first importance was for our sins. And what Christ did of first importance is that he died. The eternal son of God became man, took on our flesh to die in our place to pay a debt that we could never pay. The gospel is of first importance. And it has always been of first importance for those who truly believe. Now, when you and I think about ocean disasters and lives lost at sea, we think first about the Titanic. And yet, just two years later, there was a tragedy almost equal to that of the Titanic. But it happened on a Canadian river, the St. Lawrence River, that stretches about 700 miles from Lake Ontario to the Atlantic Ocean. In the early morning of the hours of May 29, 1914, two ships collided. The Canadian passenger, Pacific, the Canadian Pacific passenger carrier called the Empress of Ireland, which was heading to England from Quebec, and then a Norwegian freighter carrying a full load of coal. Among the passengers on the Empress were roughly 170 Salvation Army officers. They were bound for a big convention in London. Now, the ships sighted each other, being about eight miles distance around 2 a.m. And at that time, the night was clear and calm. All of the passengers were asleep and most of the crew. Then fog flowed in and neither ship could see the other. When the collision occurred, the Empress had only 14 minutes left before submerging completely under the water. The death toll was enormous. There had been 1,477 people on board. 1,012 lost their lives, including 840 passengers, eight more than, than the number that had died when the Titanic sank. Among the dead were all of the Salvation Army officers. When their bodies were discovered, not a single one had on a life preserver. Survivors told how these Salvation Army officers had reacted with calmness and courage when informed that the vessel was sinking. And when it was quickly discovered that there were not enough life preservers to go around for everyone, all of these officers removed theirs and gave them away. Survivors reported them as saying, we know the Savior. We are ready to die. And likewise, it ought to be so for all of us too. Ready to live for Christ, but ready to die also. Because it is God's most precious truth 
and that which is of first importance for time and eternity, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we would ask that you would speak your word deeply to our heart, that we could truly understand in every way what is of first importance to our lives, both for now and forever, concerning what you have done for us in the person of your Son. May it be, Almighty God, that not just through uh, this Easter week, but every week of the year, every day of our lives, we would understand that the message that brings hope, the message that brings peace, the message that brings certainty about life and its meaning is the message of Christ, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. May we live every day knowing that this is of first importance. In Jesus' name, amen.